was not caught, though many tried. I'll live among you, well disguised. One day you may find cause to ask yourself what the limit of some pain is you're experiencing. But you'll soon learn that when you're watching True Detective Season 2, there is no limit to that pain. I'm done with the show. I'm just done with it. You sound awfully angry, and uh, I don't think I've ever heard that in your voice. I don't know what's going on in this town of Vinci. I, I don't really know what we can do. I feel almost helpless. I suspect that the anger you hear in my voice is from the fact that I was so excited for a big hard reset this week, but that didn't really happen, which, uh, as we'll talk about tonight, I guess, really kind of ruined the show for me this week at least, uh, but we'll talk about that later. I also wanted to uh, thank you for that really great tape your CI sent in that uh, we should play for our listeners now. So as I'm driving uh, here, I wanted to take a few minutes and... Uh, share some react because I, I did watch the new episode last night um I don't know where the theme of this podcast for you is going so I'm just going to make two two comments and they're both really more uh, about the the acting um I sent you that text that I think that regardless of what people think about this season so far and, and everybody wants to compare it to season one um, and granted, McConaughey and Harrelson were totally off their ass the whole season. But I, I feel like that's exactly the case for all three of these guys and even Vince Vaughn. Um, I know that Vince can play these kinds of roles. He's done them before. <clears throat> but um, in particular, I, I really think that... Um, I know that he's made some flubs in, the, in like the big... Hollywood sense is Taylor Kitsch. He's made some movies that have just haven't done very well for whatever reason. Um, you know, I think of that John Clark or whatever the hell it was, that Disney movie and like uh, Battleship. Those things got destroyed by critics, but <clears throat> he's he's been a solid actor since uh, the TV show uh, TV series Friday Night Lights. I thought he was awesome in that. And I think now he's at a whole new level. Um, and the, the scene that prompted me to send you that text was the scene where Valcoro picks him up and uh, and he just has a little breakdown in the car there. I, I, I mean, that was just, I mean, to me, that's, there's so much subtlety in that whole scene with the way that he's got to look. And it's really not really so much what he's saying, but what he looks like when he's saying it and then how he says it and then the other thing is uh for the for the major shootout at the end um not only was that intense as shit but if you watch the way that he handles his pistol and this is still taylor kitsch i, I think that you can really tell that he he's put in the extra little um you know, he has he had his wits for breakfast, if you know what I'm saying, whatever it takes. Because he looks like a professional uh, handgun user. And what I mean by that is how he holds the gun, 
how he aims the gun out away from his body and then how he brings the gun back into his chest which in the shooting world is known as the ready position and he's doing that and he he looks completely authentic Um, and to me those are just the little things that maybe a lot of people don't don't see as a big deal but to me that's that's a guy taking this part very seriously uh, and doing all the little things to make it as real as possible so um, those are my uh, my two thoughts on that one now I just got to figure out True Detective Fans, it is now time for Episode 5. The 5 standing for Other Lives. Well, that doesn't really stand for it, but that's the title of the show. Uh, I am Sergeant, or Death Sergeant, actually, uh, Phil Moselak, and across the way is my very good uh, sniffer of good things and bad. And that's my special, special agent, Brian Hamilton. How's it going? Thanks again for uh, hanging out with me in this evidence locker. It's hot tonight. It is hot. There's there's a heat in the air, and um, I think the heat came off of Twitter, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I happened to look last night as the show was rolling out, about an hour out, and there were some very divided uh, feelings on this Other Lives episode. Yeah, it's no secret that we record on uh, Monday nights because of, uh, you know, show accessibility things. But, yeah, it's really interesting recording, you know, after the show is aired and being able to see all of the uh, really divisive live hate or uh, opinions that are happening. I was definitely in the uh, not-so-enthralled camp. Uh, I hadn't posted anything on Twitter, but you're right. Like, watching people's reactions and... uh, know live tweeting along with the show is definitely one of the more fascinating aspects of watching a tv show like this here in 2015 and uh we had some expectations i had made some predictions and one of my predictions came true to an extent uh we are 66 days from the events and the carnage of episode four which is a far cry from last year's, you know, what, 12 years or 20 years, however long it was. Yeah. And in fact, it was funny because after watching episode five, I immediately turned to episode five of last year just to see where we were. Um, and to compare the two is really apples and oranges, but I just wanted to see what, what we had, had in, in store for us or what we were, what we were missing. Yeah, and uh, I feel like we were missing a whole heck of a lot this episode compared to last season. Want to jump in? Yes. Uh, I think the expectation was we would have a full-on hard reboot. And that we did not get. We got um, opening up. um, We have Ray, who is now working for Frank. Is that the opening? The opening, so it it starts off literally seconds after last episode. We get like a single shot or two of the carnage, and then it jumps to Frank watching the news in his new place, I guess. He moved uh, since last episode, uh, and the 66 days passed, and it's a much smaller place. They talk a lot about this later, but he talks a lot about um, 
know, how he had to move into a smaller place. And that has to be because of money, right? Things are not looking good for Frank. No, they're not. They're really not. He, he is tighten, tightening his, uh, his wallet a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he, um, he started from the top and now he's like here in the bottom. And uh, we get some conversation about that later, about where he came from and where he is now. But suffice to say, based on this one shot, things are not going very well. But um, what we learn from the newscast that he's watching in his new place is that Casper's case has been closed and we have a uh, new I, – I, he's a guy that's running for mayor, right? Um, that was his, no, no. Oh, okay. He, he, wait, wait, um, no, he's not running for mayor, but he knows that the mayor definitely has some ties to all this. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the mayor, uh, was the one who told him that someone wanted his poker club. And that really ticked him off in a big way. And there was always that feeling of, well, who's, who is out there? That's trying to like get into my game and push me out. And we start to get a little bit of inkling and on the who's who of that uh, in this episode. He has a bad feeling, the the hot feeling on the back of his neck that his one of his. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. It, it's not exactly uh, Shakespeare, nor is it grit. Um, it's somewhere in between. And uh, but we find out that that. That feeling uh, is going to be checked over by Ray, who has quit the force. Yeah, so the next thing that we see is uh, Frank, or no, not Frank, Ray, you're right, with uh, no mustache. I guess that's how you show time passing is facial hair. Apparently so. But, you know, a, a, a nice fresh haircut wouldn't help, would help as well. But, mm-hmm. you know, we just didn't want to go down that path. <laughs> it makes him seem like... I, you mentioned before we actually hit re- the record button that uh, the acting in this episode was a little bit better. And I feel like, not even in terms of acting, but just the way that Colin Farrell looks now um, really informs his character in a much better way. Uh, there's a scene later where he's uh, talking to people about you know what's to come next. And he, he looks like he's a real you know gritty cop. It looks like he's actually saying, well... You know, I'm uh, I'm here, and the mustache. Like, I felt like that was a little bit cheesy, but I feel like he's coming into his own in this episode, at least in the way he looks. Okay, what you just did right there, and I can't see you, but I know what you did. You kind of snarled your lips a little bit, and <laughs> you see, and that just comes from us, you know, working in law enforcement and and knowing things. Mm-hmm. Sam Elliott, a man with a huge mustache. We can infer emotions because of his eyes. Mm-hmm. Colin Farrell cannot do just eyes. He has to have the whole face. So by removing something that hides his face, we, he gives us a little bit more to work with. The mustache was too big. 100% agree. Yeah, it was hiding. It was hiding. <laughs> so yeah, that's why... Most of the time, you should never trust somebody with a mustache. But that's, you know, because they're always <laughs> trying to hide something. And he's hiding some scars and, and different things as we see. No, definitely. Uh, so, so the next thing that we see is um, uh, Ray uh, working for Frank. He's basically a crony now, but in an official capacity, he is working um, uh, at the casino uh, that Frank runs as a security consultant or something like that, it says on his uh, name tag. 
Yeah, very interesting. Whenever you're a consultant, you're a jack of all trades. And 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 of course Ray has uh he has abilities that far reach what most men would have. Um but he is looking for something more because he's going to need more money for his uh litigation to get his son. Mhm. And that that is the next thing we see or at least a little bit later um you know, he takes up Frank's offer from a few episodes ago saying, that, why don't you come work for me? This cop thing isn't really suiting you, even though in the episode before that, he said, hey, let me uh, give you a promotion or something within the ranks of the cops, which I also thought was weird. I talked about a few episodes ago. But uh, here now he's uh, working for Frank for extra cash to handle those litigations. And that scene in the courtroom, I thought was the best scene this episode uh, with uh, – Ray and his wife, and I guess the hearing was for the hearing was for his son, right? Which well, it was for the the drug test and for um the paternity uh, test. Paternity test, correct? Right. It, it it didn't make sense to me that he exploded so much at the end of the scene when they brought up the paternity test and the rapist because he he knew that was coming. Like if this was a hearing for his son. I, I'm amazed that he blew up so much when they brought it up. What did you think about that? I didn't make the full connection that the rape may have produced his son. That's where things for me started to solidify slightly in understanding why – I understand why he was concerned, but I thought maybe you know she got pregnant – at some other point in time, and there was some sort of issue, I didn't realize it was because of the rape. I just didn't put that part together, which made it which made it all the more real for me and why Ray was so upset because he wants this boy to be his. And As he said very loudly when he goes, uh, I raised that boy, I raised that boy, which seems to be his only argument in the case at this point. That's right. But... I, I feel for him. You know, I, you know, it's it's kind of one of those situations where I actually, you know, I was caught in the moment and 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 really felt for him and felt like, good gosh, I mean, it kind of seems like I know you're off the force, but you didn't really like it anyway, and you're trying <laughs> to make a new thing happen, and everything's kind of being still torn away from you. No, exactly. Uh, so the main um, conflict there in this subplot was the fact that um they explained this in like the first hearing in one of the first episodes was that around the time of supposed conception for uh ray's son uh his wife was assaulted and the controversy there was that they didn't know 100 percent for sure that it was um that it was Ray's kid. It was his, you know, DNA involved in the pregnancy. So at this point, the the big reveal, I guess, at this point in the show is that that is the story that his wife is going with. The fact that she would rather have a rapist be her son's father than Ray. That's what blew my mind this episode was that a few episodes ago, you know, they um uh, they tried to bribe him by saying, hey, here's $10,000. Do not contest the paternity. Like, do not even go down that route because if you do, then there's still a chance you may have custody and we don't want that. So right now they're going 100% behind the theory that this is the rapist's 
gun and not Frank's or sorry, Ray's, which is heartbreaking to him and very obviously. And adds for a great subplot and kind of um, motivation for Ray to take on this new job that's coming up. We haven't gotten quite gotten to, but basically it's dangled in front of him. Hey, we can, the state can come in and help you uh, with, with this case and you can get your son, but you have to help us as a, um, a private consultant. Mm-hmm. Now that's, uh, that is his new job later, but, um, uh, what's next chronologically? So he is, uh, working for Frank as a, uh, crony security guard kind of guy. He's, um, uh, remember last episode or the episode before when Frank goes to that, uh, real estate developer or the, uh, landlord at this one, uh, spat of land and these apartments and says, Hey, so we're going to be reinforcing things here. We're going to be reinforcing our own presence and we're going to have, uh, people coming the first of the month to collect rent. Turns and out that's right now. Yeah, that's right. Yep. <laughs> and he doesn't do the job like Frank would want because he does have a bit of a soul. Mm-hmm. Which is nice to see. I mean, it's just one of those – those are little things inside of the storyline that give us character. You're right, but those moments of character I think are pretty invalid at this point just because there's not much else there for uh, – a lot of these characters to do. We'll talk about this later when the scenes that are in my notes happen, but a lot of the dialogue in this show is just bouting out character development, like in very obvious ways that true detective never did in season one. And you're right. Those little character moments, they make for good little tidbits of acting, little bits of fat to chew on for the actors to put emotion on the screen. But I don't think it's adding up to anything at all. Right. Uh, We do also have Paul, the God warrior, um, that they, so uh, quoting, um, Ray there, uh, he is now working in the fraud division while Ani is working, uh, was it inventory and evidence? Mm-hmm. She's still doing some of the foreclosure stuff that we saw a few episodes ago when we visit the foreclosed house. But yeah, her, I guess her main job right now is, you know, behind a desk, which is the ultimate demotion for, uh, for any sort of cop in that world. Yeah, I think we pick up with her next uh, in one of her uh, sex ed classes. <laughs> okay. I so. mean, sexual harassment <laughs> classes. Oh, I I loved this scene for a few ways I'm struggling to articulate, but what did you think? I'll let you go first. Um, first off, I think it's hilarious that they got tied up. I mean, I can see this in all classes, like harassment classes, where everybody's kind of pushing the envelope to see what the instructor instructor will do and say. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she flips the script and starts talking about girth with uh, <laughs> putting a handcuff around, um, mm-hmm. the guys are absolutely – it made for a very light moment, which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of fun. Right. Um, so you can obviously see that the instructor in this uh, sexual harassment course is a lame duck, to say the least. He's trying to say, no, 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 this is the right thing to do. And as someone who like who thinks a lot about those kinds of issues, it's something that like it, you need to have a certain kind of conversation with people like that to make it work. That's not the conversation you have. You don't say, uh-uh-uh, the rule books say you don't do that. And I guess you have to in police context like that or like big uh like corporate context where you have to say this is the rule follow it now okay um but my favorite thing about this is that 
um, what Annie does there is that she leverages how uncomfortable everyone else is around woman to uh, make for a really weird scene. Like it really reverses the power dynamic where she's so comfortable with her sexuality that she never thought any of this was a problem in the first place. But by even like even being more uh, comfortable with her sexuality in this case and talking about, you know, all of those things that she talks about in the show for, uh, uh, to remain couth like they um she really shows who's in power there by saying yeah i like these things and this is uh why and it's all very sarcastic but it makes everyone else feel so uncomfortable and i think that's what's important about this scene is that she flips the dynamic she is in control of her sexuality and the context in which it happens and going to another version of sexuality paul's still litigating over this whole uh, BJ's on the highway. So Paul's getting, Paul's across the table from the starlet who's been wanting for some time now uh, to get this kind of off his back. Um, and it seems like it's almost a possibility, but not really. It's still kind of looming over him. A lot of the things they talk about involve the vinci massacre as they call it in the show and the fact that he's there trying to negotiate these two things he's a war hero he did amazing things at this um vinci massacre but he's also accused of this also sexual harassment thing and first of all the actress in this scene uh or the actress in the show is she's infuriating me because as the audience we know that nothing ever actually happened and she's just accusing him but the way she delivers her lines is like hilariously infuriating because you could tell 100% that it was just parroted lines from her lawyer to say, okay, this is what you say. And she says everything like um, giving it her best B-movie starlet um, like emphasis and spin on it. And I think, thought it was hilarious that like this person is bringing her acting chops into court with her and it's not working at all. No. So it it doesn't really end with any kind of resolution, as I recall, and really ends up with Paul, like, kind of going off the handle a bit. Mm-hmm. And I believe we're getting to the point where then Paul has dinner with his fiance and mother who has been on the boat for eight days. Mm-hmm. And... You know, they're talking about the wedding and moving that up and where mom is going to stay on the couch. And and he takes uh, in the beginning of this scene, we see that uh, Paul is really not very satisfied with his life. And it's easier to numb the pain with two uh, little bottles of booze in his iced tea, which Mm -hmm. he pounds at the end of uh, the conversation. (laughs) <laughs> no, I thought the um, it was the opening shot of the scene where he dumps in the vodka in the drink, right? Yes, yes. I, I thought that was a really great little establishing moment. Um, going back, I do want to bring up one more point about the uh, litigation with the uh, starlet. There's Ribbit. something that the um other side says to Paul about. Well, did they ID all of the bullets? Did you see who killed all of the uh, civilians? And like, yeah, it was the other side. I did not kill any civilians. They all killed the civilians. And the most fascinating thing about this scene to me wasn't anything about the starlet, even though I thought she was hilarious, but um, the fact that it's still controversial 
how everything shook out, even though all of the prints were taken, all of the bullets were identified, all of the stuff has been like logged and investigated. But there's still controversy among people about who did what in this Vinci massacre. So I don't exactly know like what to make of this. I mean, last season, the big massacre that turns the tide in the entire season, it, it is uh, fabricated and it is uh, controversial. And they never learn – no one else ever learns that this was the case. But they end up um, – uh, they end up having these repercussions 66 days later after the Vinci massacre. What do you think is going to come of this once people resolve what actually happened and there's less side taking in terms of what happened? Well, it seems as though like the woman who's uh, bringing the team back together again, she's not satisfied with the results. She doesn't believe what she's what she's heard or what she's seen or it, more importantly, from her angle, how everything was shut down mm-hmm. on on a higher level. What you know, the team saw was basically, look, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why would this guy go after Casper? It it just doesn't make any. It it just doesn't work. It doesn't add up. The numbers aren't there. So you have kind of two ends of the spectrum, which is, I've got to create a team that's completely under the radar because. Anybody higher level is going to shut it down immediately. So I think you've got some like two 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 uh, levels that are going to start going upstream because now we know that somehow these expensive affluent men uh, are involved in something. So as soon as you you know take the top two percent people in the area and start throwing stones, their houses, they, you know, they tend to throw bricks. Exactly. Exactly. No, you're right. I mean, what we see a lot about, uh, the end of the episode is all of the stuff about people who are higher up than them being way leveraging way more power in this case than anyone previously anticipated. So we'll get to that in a bit. I do want to like delve into that really deep with you and talk about all the stuff that happens at the end of the episode and the developments they made. But uh, thank you again for indulging me in that tangent, but you did bring up uh, Paul and his mother. Uh, This scene, uh, (laughs) what did you think of the scene? I don't know to what end, it really was trying to move anybody forward. I I don't understand why we had to know about the 20, 20 grand. I honestly I don't know why he had to go there again at all. I don't I I, I don't narratively I'm not sure where it pushed us. So I think the reason that he went to visit uh, his mother was to tell her about Emily and that he was getting married. Um, but what he does there is tries to find $25,000 of army money in cash that he had in a duffel bag. And it's something that it, it infuriated him when he realized that the money wasn't there. His mom spent it all. And the mom then turns the tables on him for being un, an ungrateful son or something like that. And I did not like, so in the, her, in her first scene in the show, a few episodes back, we saw some really screwed up family dynamics there. And at the time we used it to try to inform Paul's character as to who we, who he you know was at the time, because as we talked about a lot on this show, we do not get the 
like we have to do the work in trying to piece these characters' motives and everything together as opposed to last season where we were on these characters' sides. Um, but now the, f- the, the purpose of this scene with his mom in this episode, I believe, is to inform where he's going. Uh, he jumped right into a marriage last episode uh, due to a pregnancy, uh, mainly to hide his homosexuality, mainly to, uh, uh, to do that. But I think it has something to do with uncertainty about life. And he wanted something quick and simple to deal with, um, uh, to deal with life and not have to worry about, you know, not have to think too much about what's coming next. Uh, but to do that, he needs money. And the next thing that happens is his mom blows up on him for being for like ruining the family and being ungrateful and ruining her career and the idea of family in this exchange uh it 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 mere it echoes uh Frank's thing with his wife about uh having a child so i i think the the thing about this whole uh season so far and a lot of the subplots are unified by the idea of family and the idea of sexuality and how they're both entwined but the way that this scene kind of fell apart at the end with his mom saying no you're a horrible family man this isn't going to work it only gives him the fuel to move forward just like the fuel to move forward with uh ray's new job is this new development about the rapist yeah i I, and honestly i wasn't expecting her to be all throwing down the tears you know it was like i can understand being so angry you're gonna cry but it just didn't it it just didn't line up for me. I, I wanted her to be full on angry and then be done with it. It just it just didn't it just didn't didn't work for me. Well, uh, Paul got full on angry. He was shouting like it was the loudest shouting I've seen in this uh, show since. Uh, what happened to your shoes and all of that stuff? And it, it was a huge explosion. Yeah, yeah. I I mean he uh, and justifiably. I mean I can understand why he was angry. I just didn't understand exactly why then she then caved it was just it was just odd it it just felt weird to me agreed agreed um i i thought the acting in the scene was all right but what's most interesting to me is uh how paul's going to take this moving forward i don't know if we're going to get a big jump into the future like uh, last year because if we were going to get that it would be you know now this episode but i do kind of want to see him as a father based on this but and he's a sharp guy because then he starts talking to Ani about the diamonds and you had brought the brought the diamonds either last episode or previous and that's now come into play where these diamonds that were missing but never put on to the pawn rolls and this is where Paul has been doing some digging where his gross um partner uh Dixon wasn't it Dixon? Yes. It was Dixon. You're right. I, I like Team how the, um, uh, the pawn shop clerk described him as flatulent. Uh, yeah, and, and smelled like <laughs> bourbon. Yeah. So we know he was definitely into the, in, in with the kill taker. No, definitely. Um, that was – I forget if this was before or after the um, approaching uh, Ray scene where they say, hey, come work with us on this because this is uh, not okay. This is not the end of this case. I forget if the diamond's uh, discovery is before or after that, but it plays uh, into that. You bring up an, an excellent point indirectly, which is it was extremely hard to follow some of the way in which they were cutting in between 
areas. And in fact, and I can't remember exactly when, but there is a weird point where we're with Frank and his girlfriend. We cut away to a, a completely other scene and then we come right back to Frank and his girlfriend. And it was just like, what? It, it was just like there was just odd editing going on and it and it was it just it it felt extremely weird. Okay, I'm going to put on my film student hat here for a second. Uh, that kind of parallel editing is only or should only be used if the two scenes are really super interconnected, or if they like climax at the same point, or if there's like really deft editing back and forth between them. Think Silence of the Lambs when um, Lecter escapes from that second big cell in uh, St. Louis. Exactly. And this had none of that. For a guy who uses a digital razor to cut stuff. I would never have gone back to a point that I just left with. It mm-hmm. just it, it just wouldn't unless there's got to be you know you've got you can break rules but sometimes you if it doesn't work you can't. Well it's not even breaking rules it's using things completely wrong. Uh, like, the two scenes had nothing to do with each other. I don't even remember what the other side of the conversation with Frank and his wife was. Like, all I remember was stick on one thing, even if I'm infuriated by that one thing. Uh, what do you say we unpack Frank and his wife and their baby troubles just a little bit and then spend the rest of the episode talking about the case? Because the case is Sounds the most good. fascinating thing to me, but I want to get uh, Frank out of the way because... This is the thing that is stealing True Detective Season 2 is the worst thing on TV I've seen this year. Right. All right. Well, Frank has an opportunity to get five parcels for the hard drive, which, you know, obviously excites him since he's living in a, you know, in a super small house. They, she says that she can't have a baby. She doesn't think she's gone to doctors. She's had these quote unquote wavy hand surgeries, which we don't know what that was about. Um, and he didn't want to have get due adoption, but by the end of their, uh, little escapade back and forth, smoking a little dope. Oh <laughs> yeah. I kind of would. I, I don't, I, I don't mind adopting now. Yeah. Uh, so there's that they, try to figure out because again going back to paul and his mother and his soon-to-be bride this is all about the idea of family and subverting that and the way that family structures really deal with each other and a few episodes ago we see frank saying i don't want to take up someone else's burden or i don't want to have that responsibility almost like the season one line uh, i can't imagine the narcissism that it takes to bring another soul into the corrupt world or something like that but he finally comes around to it uh, for reasons I don't 100% understand, but he does. Great. Yeah, she came up with an argument about it that I guess he was adopted and it was a good idea. Now, they've also had another exchange at the club, which is there, there's been money moving around that she can't account for. This, this, there's, the books are cooked mm-hmm. and she, she cannot figure out where all this money has been diverted. And she accuses him of being a gangster or some something along the lines oh, of that. Oh, yeah. She used the word gangster and he, you know, I don't like that word. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was weird because, um, you know, he does so many illegal things already. Why is this one drawing the line for her or for him? I, I think it's one of those situations where she used something that she knew would get his goat mm-hmm. and goad him into it. 
Um, and frankly, I, I can probably hear a bunch of people saying this, uh, you know, hey, Re- uh, Frank, we never thought you were a gangster anyway, because you really, <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, you're really not. I mean, yeah, you got a little fiefdom, but in a poker room, but big deal. You're obviously not a player or you were trying to be a player and you lost it all. Well, he's trying to be a player, and he talks about how um, he was born on the wrong side of the poverty war, and he took the world, or took this world, because of his wealth and his standing there. And he doesn't consider himself a gangster because of that. He considers himself somebody who worked for what he has and is doing something you know, technically illegal, but still at least in that weird like mafia morals that are okay. Like, he's not doing something that would cross the line even in that world. Uh, The one thing that really concerned me was, um, or not concerned me, but confused me, was why is it such a problem that he's a pimp? Like, he's involved with these sex parties now, or involved with, uh, I forget what the line was, but it was something along the lines like moving women or uh, running girls or something like that. And why is that such a big problem? Uh, because he's been doing so many other horrible things. This really shouldn't be, you know, something that infuriates anybody to the point of having this conversation. Yeah. I, I'm not really sure, but it seems like, I mean, as we go further down the episode, is he really doing stuff with girls? I mean, I think maybe he's doing low-level prostitution at best. He's certainly not a part of the level that his um, uh, lackey is is involved with. I mean, because he's going above and beyond sidestepping and going to visit uh, our good doctor and <laughs> making making some very interesting things happen with uh, who was it? Um, all I'm gonna say is Rick Springfield. Yeah, exactly. No, that's how I know him too. <laughs> okay, so Doctor Rick Springfield. Um, and knows, and some, they, he does find out that he's connected in some capacity through the picture, which, you know, by getting Ray on his payroll and having Ray do what Ray does best, um, pays a visit to the good doctor in what might be, um, a very awesome beat down that I was not expecting at all. And the weird thing is. Ray or uh, Doctor um, Rick Springfield looked so much better after having a little bit of blood on his face. <laughs> yeah, he. Um, this is all about uh, the girls and the things that Casper was involved in, and you know, just like a teen movie, the next big plot beat in True Detective is going to be a party. So they talk about all these parties and the girls involved with them, and how Doctor Rick Springfield was involved with it. And how he worked on them for free or subsidized by somebody else. And uh, in order to get this information out of him, we get a really intense beatdown scene. And that was something that, you know, True Detective does that fairly often. There's a whole bunch of really great beatdown scenes in season one that are, uh, you know, motivated by things like this. Uh, you know, even in the first episode, uh, beating up the uh, son's bully's father in front of the son. It, it was great. And they do that again this time. And it it ended with a whole waterfall of expository dialogue about things i didn't pick up most of but it was like yes yes fine i did it but it was because of this 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 and it was like okay great that's what we have to work on for the next episode right and it seems as though the good doctor is also a plastic surgeon Mm -hmm. 
So he's been doing some sort of plastic surgery on the back end uh, with some of these girls that are being, I, I'm, I can only assume trafficked. Now, there is one particular person while Ray goes on a stakeout follow through, mm-hmm. um, he sees the Russian. Yes. And so that is very interesting to me because obviously the Russian had backed out of the deal with Frank. And Frank was obviously infuriated by that. But, you know, is it possible, you know, that some of these retaliations have been Russian uh, backed? Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. I guess the um, – because when I saw that, I thought that it was just another example of the um, corrupt Vinci and Ventura governments uh, coming in and exerting all their power on the case and the people involved with uh, Frank's ring. but. That would be a really interesting uh, outcome. I could also see the Russians as simply muscle and supply for these girls that are coming either. I don't know which way they're going. Are they coming to America or being trafficked out? It would seem to me um, it could be either or. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can't be sure which way it's going now, which way the pipeline is directed. But, you know, usually if you're going to. You know, put the Russians involved. They're usually not going to be, you know, I'm I'm just using you know generalizations here. They're not going to be the masterminds. They're simply going to be either muscle and supply for a bigger operation. Exactly. You can't really have all of. Uh, you really only need one or two masterminds or a team of masterminds uh, trying to dictate all of the other muscle and you know all of that kind of stuff. You're right. Uh, so we have that and. Um, that that whole thing started with uh, Frank coming to Ray and saying, "Hey, uh, you're gonna. Uh, this is your new assignment. Uh, simply because uh, I'm looking for Casper's money, uh, or my money that Casper had. He died with five million dollars of my money. And in the best line this entire season, he says, "It's like blue balls in the heart," which is hmm. <laughs> well. And then Ray tries to yeah. Ray tries to ask a question. He's like, "What are we? What am I in confession?" And immediately shuts Ray down, you know, because Ray was actually kind of playing cop there and trying to learn a little bit more about what was going on because he doesn't see Frank connected in all this. I don't think yet until, well, his trust for uh, Frank is out the door, which we find out at the end. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we just said a few minutes ago, you can only really have one mastermind. If you're going to be involved in this operation, you just kind of have to roll with it and be the muscle. Uh, That does fall apart at the end of the episode, but at this point, he did what he was told, and that's great because now he's able to, uh, I guess, further Frank's suspicions or end up helping him uh, figure out some of these things with the girls and the uh, parties, but... Yeah, that's what we get with Frank. Uh, what else? We get uh, an exchange. The missing girl. Yeah, the, well, the missing girl uh, ends up in um, uh, uh, Guerneville, which I happened to visit when I was out west just recently. Oh, really? Very, um, very hippie um, <laughs> on the water, but also very uh, known for uh, meth shacks and meth heads. Mm-hmm. So. You have a little bit of, you know, kind of a dichotomy there. And I'm not sure how much we're going to see there, but based on a tip of or information of uh, phone records, there seems to be something up there. So Ani, who's from there, takes Paul up there and they end up at a cabin 
And again, now we have a little symbology time. Uh, some flying carrion birds. Yes, I uh, I was expecting them to be buzzards and that there would be a dead body somewhere there, but no, there were carrions. Great. <laughs> right. So anyway, we get on our nature guide uh, jackets and pull our guns out and we find <laughs> the uh, the smelly shack in the woods. This is where True Detective really shines for me is those moments of really great production design that really creep you out. We got in episode three with uh, Casper's second house with the camera and the soundproofing and the masks. And we get it again here with a dingy cabin with uh, duct tape on a on uh, chair arms with blood everywhere. Blood on the walls, which uh, Ani uh, says is from arterial spurting. Uh, that's not the exact uh, phrasing, but no arterial. Oh no, something. you're pretty darn, you're pretty darn close. And yep. I was just like, really? I mean, what, what? What? Why? Yep. And but that's where it ends. They visit this uh, this shack, and I was like, yay, great! We're gonna get another big uh, climax, like we've come to expect from True Detective. Nope, they're just kind of there. It's great. Uh, that was my favorite part of the episode uh, in terms of like renewing my faith in the directorial vision of the people involved. And I was talking to my friend Ben on Twitter today about um, comparing season one and season two. And he's like, yeah, the uh, big thing that really uh, that stuck out for me so far this season is how important uh, Corey was uh, in his direction in season one. And in this, um, in this season, we get multiple directors throughout, but uh, the way that Carrie really unified the vision throughout season one was so important because it's been so inconsistent this season in terms of like those really great creepy moments. We've only got one in recent memory and then this one, this episode. So I think that, you know, this really renewed my faith in true detective as a visual uh, art, if that makes sense. And I think there's something here with this theme that seems to be that you brought out, which is family. And we see the repercussions of this because Ray gets to find out um, that the uh, rapist has been caught. And a lie that he thought was, you know, always going to remain a lie and never, you know, it would never come out, has come out. And that's really why um, his ex-wife wants full custody because he, you know, from what he knew, he was the one who kind of, you know, stopped and, and went after this guy and, you know, it was it was all settled. Based mm-hmm. on information that was given to him by Frank. Exactly. Um, yeah, so that's how the episode ends with uh, Ray coming in saying, Frank, we need to talk. Uh, not in that voice, but <laughs> he comes over and says... It's pretty uh, close. Yeah, pretty, pretty close. close. Uh, but they need to talk, and then the episode ends. Okay, great. Um, but earlier, uh, yeah, so the guy's in custody now, and based on DNA charges uh, and paternity tests that they did behind the scenes off camera... Uh, we learned that the rapist is the father. And so now that he's in custody, um, uh, it's possible that Ray isn't going to follow up on the paternity test. And maybe he'll still have 10 grand coming his way from the wife, but probably not at this point. Uh, but who knows? I mean, it, I don't know where this is going to go from here. Uh, this is definitely something that drives a wedge between Ray and Frank. But in terms of Ray's character, I hope this really informs him in going forward in a more uh, uh, rust coal kind of way. I, yeah, I think he has the potential to go 
like really off the rails in a positive way, like just basically tearing through uh, all the nonsense and kind of letting things go to waste. You mm-hmm. know, he's off the drugs, but he's still in enough on the wagon to uh, to, to to make some heavy damage. Yeah, no, uh, he stopped drinking, uh, which we see in a bar scene between him and Annie about um, – uh, about the case and what's going on next. And yeah, no, he's not drinking. He's trying to stay, uh, stay straight and stay, uh, uh, stay on the wagon. But, um, yeah, I, I, I hope something good happens for him. And the, the big thing we've been kind of dancing around this episode so far has been that, um, the hard reset that we talked about isn't so much in terms of tone or in terms of time, but in terms of the goals of a lot of these characters. And now they're all working um, under the supervision of a secret, shady, uh, undercover um, sect of the police force or of, um, or of uh, some part of the government, they're going to keep investigating Casper's death um, at, even after the official case has been shut because a lot of them smell something in the air and they realize that there's something going on in terms of how the Vinci and uh, Ventura governments are – uh, are really exerting pressure on the case. And so we talked a lot about how um, uh, Paul and Annie uh, went to the shack. That's because, okay, this this really jumped out at me as something random and weird that True Detective should not have done, but they bring back the missing sister from, I guess, episode one or two. And turns out she is the missing link in the case. She knows where the blue diamonds are. She was involved with these parties, and she's gone missing and is therefore probably a part of this case. And it's confirmed later that she is. So we'll talk about the repercussions about this later, but I do think uh, the most interesting part is the blue diamonds. What do you think about that? Well, again, it's interesting that these things are starting to come together. I just feel like... It's cheating a little bit that now we were getting that. It's like, why couldn't that? I, it's one of those little bits of evidence that is, you know, kind of making the case a little different now, but it just it feels a little disjointed. And maybe next week it won't, um, you know, because we'll have Ani who's going to probably dress up and go undercover to one of these uh, swank parties in her saxophone moment where she's wearing stilettos and some sort of negligee. I like that. Her saxophone moments. <laughs> yeah. It, it'll be something like that. They're like, yeah. whoop, <laughs> Fantastic impression. Uh, okay. Yeah. So we have that and um, we have, you know, she's the missing link. And the fact remains that there's a scene between uh, Colin Farrell and everyone else, including uh, the person who is organizing this whole thing where, uh, she pitches it to him. I think this is the worst dialogue that in the show's history so far, where she pitches him uh, a whole bunch of stuff that's been going on. And then um, his new character arc, it looks like, in this episode so far is, but you know I'm not a cop anymore, right? And you know oh. I'm not a cop anymore, right? Right, 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 yeah. right, right, right. right. Yeah. Just over and but, over again. But, but he still has his PI license. Yes, but it's a world he looks like he's trying to get away from and this is one of those like i keep trying to get out but they're pulling me back in kind of moments where 
there's also the fact that Paul and Annie were there right next to him. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just here because I want to get back in the field. And the way that Paul delivered that line was god awful. Yeah, I, you know, the thing is, I really, I think, I think Kitch is a good actor. I think he's been put in some really junk roles. Um, you this know, is one of them. Yeah, um, I'm still holding. There's something in me that says he's that he's going to be able to turn this, but I just I keep on having this feeling too little, too late, too little, too late. But again, we haven't seen it for its scope. But I I'm not hanging on every week the way I will for other things. Oh, of course. I mean, I'll hang out. I'll 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 be you know clamoring at the next episode of Big Brother over this. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> that sometimes has that has a little bit more weight to it. And I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just being honest. No, I, I really appreciate that. I was not having it with this episode. Maybe it's because, like I mentioned in my tape to you, I am. So, I was so excited for a hard reset, like you mentioned last episode, and we got just enough of it to like say, like dangle it in front of our faces and say, "Hey, look, this is what the show could have been." Because I think this would have been an interesting plot development in any show, or rather any season of a show other than this one. Simply because the way that, you know, it, it parallels season one in a whole bunch of ways. Like, um, you know, the case being closed, but then having to come back in a more undercover, uh, rogue, gorilla kind of way. Like uh, McConaughey with his uh, amazing storage unit full of evidence. That was one of my I favorite just, moments of season one. I just watched that today. And <laughs> that... See, that kind of scene happened late. That was ep- like episode six or seven. Uh, pop- yeah, I think it was like six or seven. But if they took episode five, and now I'm not saying they could have done this completely, but if you took episode five and made that episode one, you possibly could have then done the time slippage backwards. I don't know, but it just feels like We've only got three left. I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm a little concerned. I certainly am too. I wanted to give you the benefit of the doubt in the first few episodes because we talked about this. They had to get us up to speed on four different characters, but they're also making us do the work in piecing together these four characters when we want to be focusing on the case or the uh, you know art, uh, art concepts and all of those things like that, that we got a lot of... Uh, last year, but nothing at all this year like it. And they better tighten this up really fast. And let me just say, let me say one more thing. Now, Dr. Rick Springfield institutionalized um, Chisani's wife. I also believe he may have institutionalized Ani's mom, who obviously we know that he's connected to Ani's father, He's been trying to call her, and she hasn't been answering. So he's obviously involved. I mean, it's just it's just a nun. I mean, again, I would put an APB on him. That's amazing. I, I have it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a talent. I mean, I, it, I've always wanted to be a private investigator. Um, <laughs> All my life, they I wanted ba- to be a private investigator. <laughs> right, but but they instead they put a badge on me. I didn't want a badge. Mm. I mean, here we are. I'm I'm sorry they demoted you to desk sergeant, but you're doing a fantastic job at it. And uh, while I'm out here on the streets, uh, at least we get to meet up here once a week in the evidence locker trying to piece together what the hell is happening in this show. 
So obviously we're going to hear some things from Twitter. I'd like mm-hmm. to hear some more tapes from those that are giving us evidence files. Um, I did find we got one bit of evidence, and I, I don't want to forget this. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I need to pull up the old Slack right now. And it was some interesting um, a picture of Paul with the watch. And it, the picture and the watch clearly are not the same, but Paul says it is. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, Paul's really good in the field, but he's not, he's not too uh, swift. Uh, when I pull up our files here, uh, yes, it is. There's, um, it's, it's very clearly not the same watch at all. No, exactly. And you're right. That makes sense. Uh, the way that, you know, thank you again for sending us that feedback and the way that the show makes jumps that don't always make sense, but you kind of get why they do it. This one still confused me. I remember last week I was like, wait, it's the watch. So therefore it's this guy and they kill him. Okay, great. And it turns out it's not even the same watch. Yeah. So. I don't know. You know, these are the kind of things that now it makes me wonder, is it, you know, is this just a continuity flaw or should I be looking at Paul? So I feel like he's in the dark in terms of the state simply because there, there was a scene when he was uh, looking for the blue diamonds and he was like, yeah, they might've been pawned off here. Have you seen them? Oh yeah. No, someone else came in with these exact same things. The one the police came in last time. Wait, really? The police came in? Yeah, yeah, sure. Here's their card. And turns out Dixon was the guy that went in. We, we talked about the scene a little bit earlier, but Dixon went and looked for these diamonds before. And the fact that no one else like that was on the ground in the case doing it uh, was like, the fact that none of them knew it was uh, a huge red flag, which is why they're now doing this all on their own undercover. Or not undercover, but like um, uh, separate from the main police force. So I feel like Paul is a good guy. Uh, he may have just made a small error in terms of that. But now that he's off the case and uh, – or in an official standing anyway, uh, I feel like because he was also in the dark on this, he is someone to be trusted. Okay. Because, yeah, that, now that you just explained that scene a little differently – I uh, but instead in my head it played out like Obi Wan on the Clone Planet. I'm not familiar with those movies. Okay, I don't know that those movies exist <laughs> no, either. They don't. I'm just saying that if if you if you if you were to place it, uh, the whole idea of covering yourself. Um, oh, some other cops were here. Yeah, it's just like eh, it's just weird. It's just that's kind of just poor. Right. Right. Um. Yeah, so everyone's in the dark now. They're trying to figure this out on their own, much like season one, uh, but there's nowhere near enough interesting character stuff in these characters to really match the oomph and weight and depth of season one. So I'm very, very skeptical. We'll be back next week with uh, the next episode, but I do not want to be, to say the least. (laughs) Right. Right now, we're feeling... I thought we were out of this. I thought we were done with punching cards um, and our time time card in because we were, you know, I was kind of like, I think we could, we can, you know, muster something out of this. Um, Yeah, we're not going anywhere. We're going to solve the case, but uh, it's just a matter of getting through it. And you're here to get through it with us. And we've, we know we've got people that are listening 
that are going to get through it with us. And in fact, we may have a um, another agent coming aboard uh, next week. And I, I don't want to say too much more about that, but um, it's an older it's an it's an older, wiser agent. I'm very excited to have this person on with us. I'm a I'm a fan of their work, and I uh, hope they join us uh, in the evidence locker next week on uh, on this very feed. That's right, and and that's all I can say about that. I am at underscore Brian Hamilton, and you are at uh, at Moze M O Z E. Uh, please tweet at us with any sort of feedback you have to say about our um, our detective work and your own opinions on the show. I know we're not alone in thinking that this is just punching our time cards, right? Right. And, and, and maybe we're hitting all the wrong spots and maybe maybe there are some spots we can hit differently. But, you know, we can only do what we can do. You know, we only have we only have an hour to figure it out. I live among you. Well, this guy. Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, the host of Unjustly Maligned here on the Incomparable Network, and I've already burned through 15 seconds of the oh-so-precious minute I've been given to tell you about the show. It's all about the sometimes strange things we love that other people, well, don't. Some of the guests defending their tastes in pop culture include Will Wheaton. The uh, original Tron. Lee Alexander. The Twilight Universe. Merlin Mann. The 2009 movie Watchmen. Casey Liss. The Dave Matthews Band. Erica Ensign. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And of course, it wouldn't be an incomparable show without Jason Snell himself poking his nose in. Stargate SG-1, the science fiction TV series. Plus many, many more. Unjustly Maligned is the show for people who go against the grain. Every Monday, here on The Incomparable. Go to UMP.FM to subscribe, and remember, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure.